I would direct you uh, to be turning to James chapter 5. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, if you do not have a copy, I would encourage you to reach for the black book on the back of the pew in front of you, and you will find James chapter 5 on page 1013. Pastor Josh and I have been going through James, and we continue with that today. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He started out, like each and every one, an unbeliever, but became, became a witness of the resurrection, and there was a conversion. That's told in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He's known as an extraordinary individual, a godly man that followed after the law and the precepts of God. And he was a man of great prayer. And I think it's fitting that he ended this epistle to the people by, in chapter 5, having that as his two topics that he would cover. One is, how is the law seen by believers and unbelievers in prayer? Today, we will not be looking at the second part, prayer. We will do that at a later time. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11, and in that it is addressed to one audience, but there's actually two groups, sinners and saints, and that will hopefully be better understood as we go through that this morning. The sinners will get a proclamation, and the saints will get instruction. Please follow along now as I read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the, the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver has corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who, moved your, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived in the earth, on the earth in luxury, and in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at, is, an, is at hand. Do not grumble against another brother, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed to have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
the reading of God's word. I would like to take and start us out by thinking and, and thinking about, in God's word, the condemning of the sinners. That's in verses 1 through 6, the condemning of the sinners. Verse 1 says, Come now, you, you rich. And just in that phrase alone, it probably brings up more questions than it answers. Is this about being rich? Or is sinners trying to give us the group that it is talking about? No, it is not only about being rich. The Bible says much about the topic. I would like to give us just two examples. Genesis chapter 13, verse 2 says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And these words were written after Jesus, or I'm sorry, after God had proclaimed him as a righteous man, but not to the point where his name had been changed to Abraham or the covenant given with him that a great nation would come from him. He was a rich man. He continued to be a rich man, but only increased. No, it was not wrong for Abram to be rich. And then if you were reading on the outline of the guidelines that Crossway had put out this year for our scripture reading, you came across this in Psalm 112, verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. This is not a blanket statement against being rich. So then, is rich trying to tell us a specific group that James is addressing? Absolutely. And to understand that, I think we have to turn back probably maybe one page in your Bible and go back to James chapter 1, verse 1. There James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James has specifically said that he is writing to all of the Jews, all of Israel, and in that group, there are believers and unbelievers. Now, unlike what we usually see in Paul's letters, Paul is addressing saints or brothers and sisters or a specific church like in Galatia. He is addressing Christians, fellow believers. But James has called out a group of unbelievers. He wants to be known and associated with believers. That's why he states he is a servant following the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows now that the Lord is also known in Christ Jesus, the brother that he grew up with. But these unbelievers, these sinners, who are they? They are specifically the oppressing, unbelieving, persecuting rich people. They are unbelievers. See, we might think that James should have used the order like we see in courts 
where somebody has a charge against them, they go to court, they're either found guilty or not guilty, and if they are guilty, then there is a punishment. But James starts out by telling us about the punishment that will come to these rich individuals. He says it will be miseries. And they will respond only by weeping and howling. They will only be able, their grief will be so bad that they will only be able to make noises. We as humans do that. We might be laughing. We might have those noises that come out of us when we hit the end of our thumb with a hammer. We might sigh. We might moan. We might gasp. But these unbelievers in their misery can only give these sounds. That's how excruciating their judgment is. And this should sound familiar because in Matthew chapter 8, we know that Jesus was speaking to the centurion who was an army officer, a Roman, not even a Jew. And God was amazed by his faith. But at the end of that time, in that scripture, he contrasts that to the unbeliever. And the unbeliever has waiting for him in verse 12, it says they will be thrown into the outer darkness where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is what is awaiting the unbeliever. That is what this rich unbeliever is experiencing now. Grief and pain that bad, those miseries that all they can do is utter weeping and howling. And what they don't realize at that time is it will be for an eternity when they are completely cast aside into that lake of fire for eternity. But notice what it doesn't say in this scripture. There is never held out an offer of repentance or coming to the Lord. It doesn't say change your ways, repent. No, they are reaping the rewards of their impenitent, sinful life. But maybe, maybe that can be tempered to them by thinking about the things that they have now that give them so much pleasure. And what are they? They're, they're listed. Their fine, extravagant clothing, their wealth, their gold, their silver. But all of creation has been corrupted by sin and all will pass away in this, in our, or, and are all in a state of decay. When I was a young person living in my parents' home, and actually I, I chose those words very carefully because there are, are people in this room that have known me for many years like my friend Gene. And if I would have started out and said when I was little, he would have thought I was talking about when we were in high school. But this was when I was living in my parents' house and there was one piece of furniture that was so amazing to me. 
It was my mother's hope chest, better known as a cedar chest. And every time that that was opened, I wanted to be there. It was amazing. Because when it got opened up, the lid came up. The first thing that I noticed was that great smell that came out of it. It wasn't like making popcorn or, or toast, but it was very unique, and it was so neat. But then the next part of it was, what was inside of that? There was those sweaters that were there because they were out of season, those big blankets. There was those quilts, and they were huge, and I, wa I wanted to get a hold of them. Because on those rainy days, when you're making that fort in the house, they would cover so much, but I wasn't allowed in there. But there's a purpose to that cedar chest. See, that special wood that lines that has a way of counteracting moisture. And it protects those things that are inside there from moths and bugs that would destroy There is no cedar chest large enough to stop the decay that is going on of everything in this world. Unbelievers, these rich people, will see before their eyes the very things that they hold so dear be completely destroyed. Their garments will be nothing more than food for moths. Their precious metals will tarnish Look and be nothing to them. And that is the misery that they will face. Sometimes I think scripture shows us that individuals put way too much stock in what they have. And I think one of those times is the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 12 where he said the dilemma that the man had was that he had so much, he didn't know what to do with it all, and his answer to that was, I'll build more barns so I can hold more stuff. And God said to him that night, you fool, your soul is required of you. Those possessions will do you no good. These oppressing, unbelieving, persecuting rich people have lived on earth in luxury, but so far from God's will. But what is the judgment that's upon them? I think there's three things that James points out. He talks about greed, covetousness, oppression, sensuality, also to be known as pleasure, and persecution, greed. To amass fortunes for no other sake than to see how much you can accumulate. That's greed. We might call them the miser. In my years of working, I probably have only come across two people that really fit this description. They won't be people driving fancy cars or dressing nice or wearing jewelry, because that would take the resources that they covet so well. 
All they want to see is how much in life they can amass. That's the greedy. In verse 4, it talks about the oppression of the rich people. Wealthy can, wealthiness can lead to power, and power can be corrupt. And what has happened to these people is in their corruption, they have used and taken advantage of the very people that work for them, who have contracted with them for a certain wage, we will perform a certain work. And they are willing to swindle and take away from them the very wages that they have offered. And there's nothing they can do about it. They're in a predicament. They hope only that someday, maybe those wages will come to them. Pleasure or sensuality. We're not, for, we're not forbidden to engage in pleasure. Many things give us great pleasure. We here at Crossway through the years have met, had many times where we had meals, where we had picnics, where we had a Thanksgiving dinner together, and we had ample. And we were amazed by God's bounty to us. And those are good times. But that's not what this is talking about. I think Pastor Wallacher gave us a good example when he was in his first week in the book of Esther. And the king, for 180 days, had a festival, had a feast, and, ex and would show all the wares, all the riches that he had to all that will look. 180 days. That is sensuality. That is doing past the cup, being just someone that enjoys pleasure. And finally, persecution. The rich have oppressed many to the point where they have brought them up on charges that were false, and anybody that will resist, they have killed. That's how far they will go to oppress and get their own agenda. But when righteous people suffer, especially unjustly, and do not resist, this actually is a characteristic of God's people. See, persecution can come to us in fact, it's almost guaranteed because Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. What they, have tried, what they have done to me, they will do to you. And God says, I see and I will in my time respond. Oppressors will be judged, and God will take the action necessary. We do not, not have to worry about when or how. We just have to trust the Lord. So are we to say, I, I don't see that there is an application. We aren't the unbelieving rich that are oppressing others. 
I would like to remind us of what Paul has said in 1 Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Let me read that to us. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkard, nor the revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Each one of us, my friend, each believer that has been called out of a life of sin has a past. We were as wretched as the unbelieving rich person, but God in his mercy has brought us from that. That should really inspire us in two ways. First of all, we should be so thankful that God would choose to enlighten our hearts to who he is, that the miracle of faith that would come, would come to us. Also, it should give us a great awareness of the loss of so many. God has called us to be disciples and ministers of his gospel, and we should be willing and able to share his word with the lost and dying world. So James has written about the condemning of the sinners, in verse 7 through 11, there is the commission to the saints. Commission to the saints. I use the word commission as to entrust, commit to one's charge. James has said his piece about the unbeliever, and now he wants to address the believer. He wants to administer comfort to the oppressed. Those aren't words that we like to hear as believer and being oppressed. But like I said, Jesus has guaranteed that if it happened to him, it will happen to us also. We will be the afflicted. But let's see what the duties are. And there's also a great encouragement coming with those duties. I want to read again verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In these five verses, he gives the believers three, three duties to perform and five examples. And four out of those five examples 
we should see in ourselves. The first duty is to be patient. And when I say be patient, I don't mean like, give me patience and I want it now. But I mean be patient in affliction. When there be those things that are happening against us, we should not grumble. We should not do anything out of revenge. We should be waiting on the Lord. Patience is humble acceptance and submission to God, his wisdom, his will, and his timing. And our encouragement in all of this, knowing that the Lord is coming. Whatever we go through in this life, God will redeem believers and bring us out of it. Patience. The second duty, establish your heart. I think you, we could also say, establish your faith. May it be firm without wavering. Do what is good, what is honorable to God. Have a resolve that is fixed on God and his kingdom in spite of suffering and temptation. Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, and I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When we are focused on God and our feet are planted firmly in the kingdom of God. Even the things that we see where those that may be arrogant, those that may be wicked are prospering, it does not shake us because we know that God is in charge. We have been established, we rest, we dwell in the Lord. And the third duty is don't grumble against one another. I believe that God's word continually talks about the responsibility of believers toward other believers. We should see them as the top priority to us. Our resources, our time, our efforts should first be shown to brothers and sisters in Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we neglect the rest of the world because just like in the Old Testament where it says instruction to one another and it will say right behind that to also to the sojourner also to those that are not of true faith with us we still have a responsibility to them but first we should have responsibility to each other and part of that is when we do that we ensure that things in the kingdom of God his people go smoothly and are not corrupted by our grumbling. See, grumbling can have different tones to it. It can be complaining, it can be distrust, it can be envy, it could be strife, revenge. See, complaining and revenge, those are actions, we do those. But distrust and envy, those are the silent destroyers that are inside of us, that we hold on to. 
but they make us just as ineffective. They breed contempt within us and make us inefficient toward God's work and toward his people. See, when we grumble, it makes believers uneasy and the body of Christ more unsettled. You might not agree with me that in verse 9, where it talks about the judgment, it isn't just related to grumbling. I think in all of these aspects, everything that God tells us to do, if we don't do them, judgment can come upon us also, and we should beware. James gave us three duties, but he also gives us five examples. Examples are great illustrations in God's word, some that men and teachers come up with when they're trying to explain God's word, but we can rely on God's examples, what he tells us in the Bible. We have to put them in the context of where they are done, the period that they are, to completely understand them, but we sometimes have to watch out when we use examples on our own. An example of that is some people will say, we can explain the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by water. See, water is in three forms. It can be a liquid, it can be a solid, it can be a gas. That's the way the Trinity is. It's, it's one element, God, but there's three things in it. But that analogy falls apart because water can only be one of those substances at one time. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together, all one. One God, three persons. So, what are the examples that James has give, given us to be patient? The first one is the farmer waiting for his crop. How much of what the farmer does guarantees a good crop. If I was a farmer, where my patience would be worn, you've done all that you could. You've put that seed in the ground, and now you have to wait, not knowing what's going to happen. That must be an agonizing time for a farmer. God is the one that germinates and brings the crop. It takes patience of the farmer. It takes patience and long-suffering of the prophets. Many of the prophets were doing exactly what God had instructed them to do. And like Elijah, would fear for his life, for only being an obedient servant. And men would be ordered to kill. There's patience, long-suffering, and great and the greatness of God's riches in the example of Job, a man that was so afflicted, but so rewarded. But there's also two other examples that we see in this section of James. They are the example of the unbeliever. He is condemned before God experience the miseries of his unrepented sin and who is forever lost for all of an eternity from the presence of God 
There are many, many that are still in this situation, my friends. I hope there are none here in this building today with us that would be an example of that. But we can also say as brothers and sisters in Christ that our life of rebellion against a once and holy God, what are we an example of? Can we say, as Paul would, would say, and such were some of you? Is that in our past? Do we realize that we have been washed? That we, our sin has been removed? That we have been sanctified? That we have been set apart by the work of Christ? That we are justified before a holy God? That we have a right standing before him and all of this comes about how by the work of Jesus Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ and that is this that God in his mercy came into this world was born to God and true man that he lived a, lived a perfect life that no man can ever do that he died a death for our sin and paid the price and ransomed for us from the sin that we held and for the fate that held us forever to be separated from him. And he rose victorious over the grave and he extends that righteousness to us. God in his mercy offers us to be right with him by faith alone in Christ alone. May we be an example to others of God's great grace shown to us as long as God continues to bring many souls to salvation. May we be a witness of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that for those that you have not called out of darkness yet, Lord, that as long as this age continues, that you will continue to be merciful, to enlighten sinners lost forever, that the power of the gospel that is preached to them, Lord, may enlighten them, may it convict them, may it bring them to true repentance, that they may know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, may we be equipped as your instruments of faith to be used in whatever way you would see fit. That as your disciples, Lord, we, we quickly proclaim your gospel. That our lives are evident of what you have done. That, Lord, the great things that you have given us in this life are there, that we use them, that we appreciate them, that we are thankful for them, but they are not an idol. They are not our God. They do not come before you. Lord, if this has been convicting, that we know that there are things that we cherish so much, even good things. Lord, I pray that we repent. 
And I pray that we look again to the cross and know that it was my sin. It was their sin that held you there. We thank you for your great grace, and it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. As the music people come, would you please stand as we sing our next hymn?